Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. Well, my name is PMH Atwater. Yes, that's really my name. I am a doctor, LHD. I got it in Canada. I went up there to get a degree because I needed one because I was a researcher of near-death experiences. I began my work in 1978, and it was because Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I had met her at a Chicago airport and told her about my near-death experiences. I didn't know the name then. I just know I died three times, and interesting things had happened each time. I shared that with Elizabeth. She's the one who said I was a near-death experiencer and told me about the experience. So that started it. I lived then in Southern Idaho. I journeyed because uh, of, well, I was told to leave by a voice I cannot define for you. I was told to leave Southern Idaho and journey across the United States and begin my work in the East Coast around Washington, D.C sharing my work. But let's back up a little bit because the real beginning happened in 1977, three times, January 2, January 4, and April 29, or March 29, excuse me. I was raped. That's how it started. That's how it began. What do you do when something like that happens? The man left, and I just lay there in bed, very confused and very super confused. <laughs> and a month or more passed, a little bit more than a month, I was pregnant. And our older mother, to be sure, I already had three children, but suddenly I was pregnant. I was divorced. And this man was from California, I living in Boise, Idaho. And he came back and said he wanted to help. And then he disappeared. And the pregnancy, how do you define a, a pregnancy that just goes crazy and strange? And suddenly I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm in my bathroom and I'm miscarried in my bathroom, on the toilet a little sack, the wee sack in the toilet. And suddenly I find myself 
in my case, the light was was a light bulb. It was the light fixture in my bathroom. And I was suddenly twirling around the light fixture. And I couldn't understand why looking way, way down was the toilet and the sink and the bathtub and what happened? And I was bumping into that light bulb and I I didn't understand why I'm bumping into a light bulb. I looked down and I saw my very bloody body and blood everywhere and I was so confused. And the more confused I was, there were more blobs that were in the air. I don't know what else to call them. Sort of like an ink blot, only they were fully dimensional. And they kept occurring in the air, more and more and more of them. Suddenly, I was jerked. I was pulled back into my body. Sort of like letting go of a rubber band. It's like, whoosh pulled back into my body, even to my toes. I could feel that all because I was bigger outside of my body than I was inside my body. I was pulled back into my body. And of course, there's a mess everywhere. You don't change who you are. There's no way that you ever change who you are. It's always a neat nick. And here's all this stuff all over the floor. And, my first impulse was to clean up the mess, and I did. I cleaned up the mess, and I gathered every pillow that I could find everywhere in my house and stacked them as high as I could, went, went to bed, and propped my legs up on these <laughs> stack of pillows and went to sleep. I can always sleep. I'm not one of these people that... <laughs> has trouble sleeping. I didn't have any problems sleeping. Went right to sleep. I have three children. Uh, my oldest, my son, was gone. The two daughters were still there. And the oldest came in Monday morning. And uh, should I call in sick for you? That there must be something wrong with you and how you're feeling. So she called in me sick. And I was just sort of stunned yet wondering about the whole episode and everything that happened and all was what was going on and just sort of laying there and then it occurred to me <laughs> finally occurred to me that I needed a doctor I needed help I don't know how I managed to get dressed and in my car and drive to my doctor's office. My doctor only, his office was only about maybe five to seven, seven blocks away. And not far at all. But it took me a half an hour to drive there. That's because when I got in the car, there were lightning bolts all over the windshield of the car. And I was seeing the houses on either side going up and down and undulating and and everything was, was so strange. All I knew was I had to get to the doctor's office. I got there, I stopped the car. I was able to get the key out of the, you know, the, and, and so, sort of get into the doctor's office. And the, and the nurse, they screamed when she saw me. And she said, you look half dead. 
<laughs> well, I kind of was. <laughs> she got me into the doctor right away. I told him what happened. All he did was laugh. He gave me a shot in the right side vein, knowing I could not handle that shot. It was in his file. All he did was laugh at me that I had this so-called pleasure at my age. I mean, dumb. He was later on sued by several patients. I was going to sue him too, and then I decided no. No, I'll just leave this alone. But he gave me that shot in the right side and went home. Didn't have to go to a hospital. Go home. The minute I walked in the door, the pain in the right thigh ended. I went back to my bed, back to the pills. And the next morning, my daughter again woke me up, reported me ill that I could not go to work. The two girls left. And... You explain a pain that is so rigid and all-consuming. How do you define that kind of pain? My right leg, where he gave me the shot about halfway down the right leg, there was like a, a mountain growing. All around where he gave me the shot was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And my whole leg was beyond pain. If I'd had a knife, I'd have cut my leg off. I mean, it was that bad. And again, I knew I needed help. But this time, I was incapable of walking. So I crawled. Only phone we had in the house, which was a wall phone hanging in the kitchen. We didn't have any other phone. So I crawled back. I got as far as the dining room. And I died again. Only this time I kind of knew the territory because it happened before. So I kind of knew what was happening. I was up by the light fixture in the dining room, although the light fixture was not on. And I remember looking down and and looking down at my body and wondering, I wonder if it's really dead. And getting down closer and looking around to to see if... Is there any heaving and any sign of of the breath or the heart or anything working? And nothing. So I went back up to where I was on the ceiling near the light bulb. And I kid you not, I remember twirling around and around the light bulb. I was so happy to be out of that body. I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. And I was happy to be, be dead. And I remember all my thoughts were suddenly taking shape in the air around me only. This time they weren't blobs. They were beautiful, translucent bubbles. (laughs) I wanted to know more about them. Was I making them? Were they my thoughts? Are thoughts really things? You know, we hear that a lot. Thoughts are things. It occurred to me that, hey, thoughts are things, that I can make things. So I made, a, I made a whole city. I did. Trash cans, fences, dogs and cats, people, all kinds of buildings and streets and trees. And I just had a wonderful time. 
I did indeed have a wonderful time. It occurred to me that I could really do this. So I decided I would make a house. It would be four square. It would have a wonderful porch with p- pillars and steps going up and a doorknob and windows and a perfectly pitched roof. And I remember doing that and it ached at first. It's like wearing something that you haven't worn for a very, very long time. Like taking up skiing. And you haven't skied for a long time and everything aches. Well, that's what it felt like. It's like, I'm aching. (laughs) This is aching. But I did it anyway. And there was the house. It was really, really there. I remember going around and sort of kicking the foundation and going up and down the stairs. This is really, really real. And there's a brass doorknob. And wow, I really did this. I wonder, that's an inanimate object. Can I make an animate object? So I decided to do an oak tree. A great big massive oak tree with all these incredibly beautiful limbs and roots. And there was, including insect holes in the bark. (laughs) It would take someone else to go through something like this to understand what came next. No, it's like I went cuckoo nuts. (laughs) I just created everything I could think of, cities and people and dogs and cats and fences and cars. It's like, wow. And suddenly my loved ones who had died on long before me came and I could visit with them, including a, a grandfather I had never met. And he came up to me and we spoke. And that was so meaningful to me. I never saw him before. I never had an occasion to see the man before. And there he was, and we could speak. I recognized some of his traits as my own. It's like, wow. And then Jesus came, my elder brother. I regarded Jesus as my elder brother, whom I had not seen forever. It seemed like forever. And there he was, and I ran up to him, and I hugged him, and we hugged. And we laughed and we hugged. It was just joyful that Jesus is my elder brother. And then he left and my loved ones left. And I thought away everything else. Everything changed. I changed. And suddenly my life, it's like a life review. I was able to see all of my life again, all of it, all the way back to babyhood. And... I discovered that everything I ever saw, everything I was ever around, we shared energy. Everyone I ever talked to, their energy was part of me and my energy was part of them. I had the the privilege, if you will, of being able to see how my energy affected them and how their energy affected me and to go on from there to realize how my energy affected everything. The trees, the lawns, the plants, the soil, air, that all of us 
it's almost like a pea soup. That is to say our, our energy and our whatever we do affects everything else. It's like, wow. And I saw a whole lot of things. I, I was sorry I ever did or ever said. And it's like, oh dear. And there were a lot of things I didn't like and it was hellish in that sense that I never knew that every thought we think, every word we say, goes out and has a life of its own beyond us. And it's like, oh, wow. And I forgave myself. And in that forgiving, I floated back into my body as if on a carpet, all kinds of little sparkles. I floated back in my body, back to that body on the floor in the dining room of my home. And instead of going, the remaining three feet that I could have taken to pull down that phone in the kitchen. I crawled all the way back to my bed and lay there in a stupor for a couple of days. And finally, <laughs> the only thing that made any sense to me was money. Believe it or not, money. I had to go back to my job, my salary, my job, how I dressed myself and got in my car and drove all the way down to the bottom part of, Boise is like a cup, and the actual Capitol building, Boise itself is at the bottom of the cup. And there are rings that go all the way around, levels. And I made my way down to the bottom of the cup. I managed to park my car near where I worked. I worked for a bank and go into the building. They were remodeling my bank so therefore uh, we were working in another place and i was had to walk up the stairs there was no elevator i had to walk walk up the stairs i'd go up the stairs a little bit and then fall back down and it took forever <laughs> to get up to the second floor and my boss fortunately happened to walk by and and saw me and she was like the nurse at the doctor's office she took one look at me and said and said, you're dying. You look like you're dying. <laughs> so she got me to another doctor, a specialist. And he looked at me and he said, there's no way you can be alive. <laughs> but I was. He didn't send me to a hospital either. He sent me home with these pills I had to take like every six hours around the clock. And I did. I took those pills and all kinds of strange things things happened to me while I was taking those pills. All kinds of strange things happened. Uh, finally, I got some help. Finally, I was able to realize that something needed to be done. I was not getting well. So in taking these pills slowly but surely, it sort of got well. Well enough to go back to work. I could only work like maybe a couple of hours a day. And my landlord at the time decided that I needed to go somewhere else. He was going to rent the place to somebody else. So I had to find another house elsewhere in town. I did. It was in a part of, of town that I thought the, the girls would like. Neither one of them did. But we moved there. And while there, that man who raped me came back. And he said something to the effect that the only reason he did this was he wanted to see what would happen if he did something 
like another man had done to his daughter. He, he wanted to see what that would be like. In other words, he wanted to play act. And I was the unwilling victim. And that's all there was to it for him, was a play act. And then he left. And I was so shocked that I could be used like that, that, that I would even allow myself to be used like that, that anything like that could happen to me, that I died again, the third time. First time was January 2nd, second time was January 4. And now we were at March 29. And I remember ever so clearly going through the rough and seeing all the layers of what made up the roof and going through the attic and all the layers that was the attic and out into the night sky and going as far as I could, just going and going and going way out into the sky. I just, I wanted to be elsewhere, truly elsewhere. I didn't want any part of the earth plane again. I didn't want any part of living again. I wanted to be gone, forever gone, forever dead, forever gone. And I was headed for a lip of light. The earth was like a little bubble. I was way, way out. And there was this lip of light and it, it seemed somehow to draw me. And I went into the lip and into a light I can't explain. There isn't light like that on the earth plane. Nowhere there is light like that on the earth plane. And in the middle of that light was incredible, huge cyclones, one inverted over the other, sort of like an hourglass figure, only they didn't touch in the middle. And out of the middle came a power. It was this light, it was power. I just knew that if I went into the middle, I would find God. I would find out what God is. I would find out what power is. And that was my goal. That was what I was involved in doing. In the meantime, back at the ranch, so to speak, my son had returned from a cruise school in the Atlantic he did not like, and he was home, and he had my car, and he went to the Black Angus, a bar. In the bar, tossing a few with friends. He didn't tell me this till a year later, and he got a mug up to his mouth and slammed it down and said, my mother needs me, I have to go home. So he practically ran out of the bar got in a car and zoomed home as fast as he could. Now you've got to realize how we raised our three children. They were raised to know that your center, your heart and the whole center of you, that's where knowledge is. That's where truth is. That's where you contact that which is truly real. That's where you contact the real you the God within you. So instead of hurrying to the phone, he instead went within. And that voice, there was a voice, and that voice said, 
sit opposite your mother and just talk. Doesn't matter what you say, just talk. Well, when you're dying, the most important thing is sound. You'll hear sound for quite a while. So I heard him. Had he gone to a phone and called police or help, that would have been the worst thing he could have done because it would have taken a while for them to get to me. But by instead creating sound, that was the quickest thing he could do and the smartest. And I heard him. I heard someone loving someone else truly and fully and completely unconditionally. And that caught my fancy because I didn't know that was possible on the earth plane. And I wanted to go back to where he was and learn what he already knew. And in turning, I heard a voice. I call it the voice like none other. And that voice spoke and it said, test revelation. You are to do the research. One book for each death. It did not name book one. Book two, it did name future memory. That voice showed me how to write future memory later on. Future memory is not a book. It is a labyrinth. So opening up the book, you're opening up the labyrinth and it will take you as a labyrinth does all over the place. You cannot skip around. You have to stay on the path like you're in a real labyrinth. And the purpose of the book, reading the book, is to lift your consciousness up to the next highest level possible for you at that time. It is a brain changer. The third book, A Manual for Developing Humans. That was its name. Human. Hugh, like maybe a thousand years ago or more, Hugh was the sound of God. So if Hugh man, Hugh woman, Hugh, God. So the purpose of the book is then to help you relearn how to think, how to relearn how to talk. And it's easy way. It's full of thought form drawings. And the purpose of the book is to help you to be who you really are. We are all children of God. We are all co-creators with the creator. This is what we're here for. We are here to be co-creators with the creator. That's what near-death experiencers, most of them, discover. We are here to be co-creators with the creator. Humans. Hugh woman. And again, that voice helped me write the book. And it's a fun book. You'll love it. So, Future Memory and A Manual for Developing Humans, those are books that I was told to write and helped in writing by that voice. It took a long time to recover from all of this. I had to relearn how to walk, relearn how to think and feel and, and and run and experience what life is. It was difficult. It was very difficult. Later that fall in November, first week in November, 
in Seattle, Washington, they were having the Mind Miraculous Symposium. Some friends of mine decided that the best thing that could happen to me to help me get well was to go up to that conference. So I did. They took me up there in a little van, like a little baby. I was tucked in with blankets. Really, I was. <laughs> Got up to Seattle. And uh, I was sitting on the Seattle Center, big, huge, like a convention center. And I was on the left-hand side of him, on the aisle. And the first speaker was a physicist from Stanford. And he felt, he was sure that everything happens at the same time, in the same place, that there really is an eternal now and that he could prove it through physics. So he flashed on this huge drawing through physics of what the eternal now looks like. And it was the exact same thing I saw in my third near-death experience. And I remember jumping up and getting out of that conference hall and sort of collapsing under some wall sconces and all I could say was, I'm not crazy, I'm not crazy. He saw it too, I'm not crazy. And from that moment on, I started to get well. <laughs> and I uh, met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross the, the next year in Chicago. And I told her my experience. She gave me the title, Near-Death Experience. I never heard that title before, didn't know anything about that. Never heard of Raymond Moody or his book. My guidance came from Elizabeth. And later I was able to go to her Shantanalaya retreat, was with her several times, and finally quit my job <laughs> at a bank in, in Boise, Idaho, on the very day I was to get a promotion, and gave away or stored everything I had, sold my home. The kids decided to live elsewhere. And I meandered across the United States, winding up in Washington, D.C. And that's where I began my research. I am a researcher of the near-death experience worldwide. Some of my findings I mentioned in Lancet Medical Journal. I've written 19 books now. 18 are basically about my work and my research. My website is www.pmhatwater.com. I'm a for real researcher. Some of my work is in journals and this kind of thing. Done a lot of, a lot, a lot of research, nearly 5,000 adults and children. So I've done my work. I've done what, what I felt God wanted me to do. I was told to be a researcher. And over 44 years, that's exactly what I have done. I have done what I was told to do. And that's what I've done. That's where I am. And I finally wrote, finally wrote a memoir. Can you believe that? Wrote a memoir autobiography. I call it a memoir autobiography because I really don't know what a memoir is. <laughs> I'm a researcher. So I wrote, and it's out now. Edgewalker. There it is. Edgewalker. And you know, in writing this book, I began when I was born. <laughs> I've had five fathers, two mothers. I was born in southern Idaho, 
and raised by Norwegians. <laughs> I've had a very unusual life, let's put it that way. The two things that really helped me the most in finally coming back to life was reading two books, The Lord of the Rings and Dune. And I became each character in each book because that's how I was able to, to see again and be again what a human being is. And during that process, especially in Dune, I concocted this litany, the, the litany of fear. In Dune, there is a, a litany, but it's not like mine. I don't know why mine is different, but it's the litany of fear. And I pass this on to you because it is so powerful. And it helped me so much in being a human being again and, and a motivated human being and, and being able to live my life. I called it the litany of fear. Fear is the mind killer. It is the little death. I will face my fear. It will go around me and through me. And when it is gone, I will remain. Let me say that again, because that helped me so much. Fear is the mind killer. It is the little death. It will pass through me. It will go around me. I will face that fear. And when it is gone, I will remain. That's all fear is. It's a smokescreen. That's all it is. It's nothing more. It's a smokescreen. And once you can get a handle on that and understand that, you can pass right through fear. Yeah, I did my job. Any near-death experiencer, I don't care who they are, has an opportunity to see themselves in a different way and realize there really is a force beyond us, bigger than us. You can call it God, you can call it whatever you want to call it. But that force, that source is genuine. It is real. People say to me, do you believe in God? Oh, I know God. And I invite you to do the same. Thank you. <laughs>